Russian entanglements in Southeast Asia, continued turmoil in Myanmar, and a change in leadership for Thailand's Move Forward Party. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is September 21st, 2023. On today's show... It's still very important for the U.S. president to attend the East Asia Summit to meet with ASEAN in ASEAN member states once a year because it signals that the United States is interested in hearing them out, listening to their concerns, that the United States is comfortable in a, in a setting in which it doesn't set the agenda and it lets others set the agenda. That is you know, entirely consistent with U.S. post-World War II diplomacy and liberal internationalism. That was Aaron Connolly, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor to discuss the ASEAN Summit, East Asia Summit, and President Biden's recent trip to Vietnam. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Rachel Lambert in the studio. Rachel is an associate with the Southeast Asia in Research and Analytics Practices at the Asia Group. Welcome. Happy to be here, Jaffa. Fun fact, Rachel's a former collegiate fencer. Yes, I miss it a lot, though I feel like it has some applicability to the policy work I'm doing now. How so? Well, you have to be precise and anticipate your opponent's moves, which is a lot like international relations because some people say it's just like a big chessboard. Speaking of a big chessboard, let's move on to our first story in Myanmar, where there's a lot happening both domestically and internationally. Yes, recently news broke that the junta is denying Aung San Suu Kyi medical care. Sources on the ground say that she's suffering from a tooth infection that's preventing her from eating, leaving her in a sickly state. The National League for Democracy, NLD, says that this is intentional neglect. And on the international front, Myanmar was supposed to hold an ASEAN Air Force Chiefs Conference, but very few diplomats showed up. Brunei, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam sent delegations, but Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Singapore did not. This comes right on the tail of last week's ASEAN summit, where leaders accused the junta of ignoring the five-point peace consensus. Not surprised to hear that. I also heard that Myanmar had to cede its 2026 ASEAN chairmanship to the Philippines. There's a lot of moving parts, but it doesn't stop there. Did you hear about the memorandum that Myanmar just signed with Russia? No, what was that about? A junta delegation, hosted by Russia, signed a memorandum of understanding with their Russian counterparts, aimed at fostering cooperation in election activities. The delegation analyzed Russia's election methods and logistics, as well as campaign procedures. Interesting. In addition, the head of the Russian Election Commission invited Myanmar to observe the presidential election in 2024. This isn't the end of Southeast Asia-related Russian activity, either. What do you mean? On September 12th, President Putin hosted the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok, where Pani Yatoto, the vice president of Laos, was the highest-ranking foreign guest present. Putin planned to hold a separate bilateral meeting outside the forum. A lot of the policy talk in D.C. about Southeast Asia often revolves around U.S.-China competition, so hearing about the Russia angle is fascinating. I wonder what they're playing at. Can't help but wonder. Lastly, Thailand's Move Forward Party is making some major changes. Vita Limja Ronrat resigned on September 15th as the leader of the MFP. Since Pitai is still banned from parliament due to a court order, he stepped down because he felt like he couldn't serve well as an opposition leader while banned. Hmm, I guess that makes sense. While Move Forward hasn't yet indicated who will be replacing him, more to come as always. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Rachel, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Aaron Connolly. So stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined by my co-pilot, Alina Noor with the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, from D.C. 
Today, we're joined by Aaron Connolly. Aaron is a once upon a time DC think tanker himself. These days is at IISS in Singapore, where he's a senior fellow and runs the Southeast Asia program. Aaron is here in Manila with me, where we're taking part in a US-Philippine-Japan trilat, while Alina is stuck back in now not-so-hot and miserable Washington. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Greg. Hey, Alina. So... The reason we have Aaron on, other than that he's just a great guy, is that we just wrapped up the ASEAN and East Asia summits at the beginning of this month on September 4th to 7th, where Vice President Kamala Harris attended in Jakarta. Aaron was there. Uh, and then there was a Group of 20 summit in Delhi and the bilateral Vietnam visit by President Biden. Those took place on September 9th and 10th. So we've got a lot of summitry, bilats to cover. Why don't we start with, with ASEAN and, and EAS? I mean, Aaron, you were in and around the room. What are your top takeaways from this year's summits? I think you know, the East Asia Summit, there was a lot of work that went into the, the negotiations for the joint statement amongst the East Asia Summit leaders. You may recall last year, there was no joint statements or joint statements, plural, from the East Asia Summit leaders because Russia and the U.S. couldn't, and the U.S. and its allies, uh, couldn't agree on a number of issues. And so Indonesia took the lead this year in trying to negotiate one joint statement that was led by Indonesia, but that was still very difficult because the U.S. wanted to maintain the language that was in the 2022 G20 communique that was negotiated at Bali last year on the war in Ukraine. Russia wanted something less than that. Those negotiations went down to the wire, but ultimately Indonesia was able to pull out a joint statement for the East Asia Summit for the first time since 2021. Uh, And I think they're quite proud of that negotiation. They feel like it was evidence of the success of their non-aligned diplomacy that they were able to get Russia and the US to agree on a joint statement again, just as they did at the G20 last year. But I mean, it's notable that that statement uh, does not include quite as strong language on Ukraine as last year. And the Indonesians were comfortable with that, despite having uh, negotiated a pretty tough statement in 2022 that I think a lot of people felt they, they should have been proud of and perhaps pursued further. So, Aaron, the tagline for Indonesia's ASEAN chairmanship was ASEAN epicentrum of growth. I still don't know what epicentrum means. I should, but I don't. And so if you can educate me, that would be fantastic. But a lot of Indonesia's chairmanship was really premised on growing the economy for the region, as well as attracting business investment and increasing commerce. Do you think that was achieved under Indonesia's chairmanship for the region as a whole? President Jokowi has always had this focus on what he calls diplomacy membumikan, down-to-earth diplomacy, which he has interpreted as making sure that diplomacy works for ordinary Indonesians and particularly generating economic growth that would help ordinary Indonesians improve their lot in life. And so going into its ASEAN chairmanship year, There were sort of two minds within the Indonesian system about how to handle that. One within the foreign ministry was to really focus on ASEAN reform. Alina, you'll know Indonesia's historically worked on this issue when they are chair. They've negotiated three Bali concords, and they wanted to negotiate another one this year to make sure that ASEAN worked better for the region and for the world. And then within the economic ministries, there was this emphasis on growth. And epicentrum of growth is the phrase that came out of those discussions. And both of those things appeared to appeal to President Jokowi, maybe epicentrum of growth more than ASEAN matters. But they ended up up including both of them in the slogan. You know, there was a real focus at the summits on economic 
issues on investment, on trade. I was at an ASEAN Business and Investment Summit that was very flashy, uh, that was hosted by the ASEAN Business Advisory Council. President Jokowi hosted those of us who presented at that summit at the palace. Whether or not that actually leads to greater investment or trade within ASEAN or with dialogue partners, I think, you know, remains to be seen. But I think, uh, you know, that is just reflective of President Jokowi's priorities. I want to move on to the, the symbolism, but let's, let's stay on the substance for a little bit longer. The other two, I think, main issues that people took note of were South China Sea and Myanmar. So just like every summit, South China Sea, I didn't detect any substantial change in language. I think people were a little surprised given the scale of the dangerous harassment the Philippines in particular dealt with, and then all the fear over China's recently released official map um, with the 10 dashes, which claims not just the South China Sea, but you know Taiwan, Oxide Chin, and so on, that there would have been more push on the South China Sea. Any sense of why that didn't happen? Uh, was there not an effort or was it rebuffed? Greg, why are you bringing up problems, Greg? <laughs> As I understand it, this was a... a topic of conversation at the summit, but it just didn't end up in any of the joint statements or chairman statements that Indonesia produced. Part of the reason for that is there was some surprise on the part of other ASEAN member states that the Philippines didn't propose, as President Marcos said he was going to the week prior, a joint statement on the South China Sea. That appears to have been a decision that was just taken internally within the Philippines. And I think, you know, you have some ideas about why they decided to, to do that. I think there are a few possibilities, right? One is they decided the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. They were unlikely to get a very strong statement, so they didn't want to spend diplomatic capital to try to get one. But I think also there are some within the Philippine system who recognize that under President Duterte, and particularly under Teddy Luxin as foreign secretary, the Philippines came to be seen by other ASEAN member states as a very disruptive member state on these questions, as an outlier. And under President Marcos, with its closer proximity to the United States, it's seen as even more of an outlier within ASEAN. And the Philippines appears to have made the calculation that it would be in their interest to try to close that distance between the other ASEAN member states and the Philippines, and then to have President Marcos make this intervention at the East Asia Summit and at the ASEAN Summit, which he's now published online, which goes through their reasons that they care so much about this issue uh, and makes clear that they are Philippine reasons, not merely the reasons of an American ally, and that that would receive a more sympathetic hearing if they weren't pushing so hard on things like the joint statement or the, or the chairman's statement. Those two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Because if, if you are not, if you are a Philippine bureaucrat and you've been through this process for a decade and your belief is that you'll never get a substantive statement out of ASEAN anyway, then that only reinforces the idea that, well, we shouldn't really torch any bridges unnecessarily. And, and as you say, I think President Marcos's intervention did a lot of good. I mean, people, I certainly appreciated it. I thought highlighting that the entire framing of the South China Sea as a bilateral U.S.-China issue undermines the agency and the interests of claimant states was good. And it wasn't just directed at China. I mean, I think that statement was directed at some fellow ASEAN members who prefer to frame the South China Sea as if it's a U.S.-China issue, which completely disregards the interests of Vietnam, the Philippines, and Malaysia, and so on. Speaking of U.S.-China, I know you wanted to bring up symbolism, Greg, so I'll just start. There was a certain leader who was missing, and a lot of hand-wringing about that. Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, him too. I guess it's not surprising that when the U.S. president 
goes missing from a summit in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of anxiety and everybody feels a need to comment on it. Was, was he really missed, Aaron? I think so. Certainly by the Indonesians, the fact that Joe Biden did not show up at the East Asia summit was keenly felt by some in the Indonesian administration. There's now discussion in Jakarta about whether or not President Jokowi will go to APEC in San Francisco. And I think their inclination is not to go. The attitude is President Biden didn't go to our summit, so why should we go to his? And of course, APEC has less of a purchase on you know, ASEAN's ideas about the regional architecture because it's not ASEAN-centric. So no, I think it does matter. It matters because it's the signal that the United States sends to the region about its level of comfort with ASEAN. I think the signal that the region is getting, whether this is the one the administration tends to send or not, is that the United States will work and will work very closely and very hard with partners that are more like-minded. And so you see the president going to Vietnam, you know, just a few days after the ASEAN summit. It will work with the Quad countries. It will work on getting Japan and South Korea on the same page. But if you don't really share the U.S. view of the threat that the U.S. believes China poses to the region, then you won't get a visit from the president. You won't get the U.S. working very hard with ASEAN. And, you know, I know the White House objects to this. They say they just hosted a summit. They're pitching $90 million to uh, Congress in their budget for work with ASEAN. But this is a really important signal about, you know, America investing in the power of small and medium-sized countries to determine their own path in the world as the, you know, in, in, in the way that President Obama described it during his administration. And it appears to be a departure from that. So I think it does matter. All right. I know you want me to tee this up for you. So why does it matter more that the Americans don't send their president, but it doesn't matter that China has never sent Xi Jinping? So it's, it's interesting. And I think, you know, Alina may have some context for this as well, because it was a decision that was reached in Kuala Lumpur when the East Asia summit was being thought up in the mid 2000s. China has always uh, sent to ASEAN its premier instead of its president because it wanted ASEAN to be more focused on economic issues. When the East Asia summit was thought up, it also wanted that summit to be focused on the ASEAN plus three mechanism that developed after the East Asian financial crisis and to continue that economic focus. And when it didn't get that, when ASEAN actually decided to be more inclusive, to include Australia, New Zealand, India, and then later to expand to include the US and Russia, to dilute China's power in that setting, China responded by continuing to send the premier instead of upgrading their presence to uh, the leader level, to Xi Jinping's level. But it's worth you know casting our mind back to 2005 when Wen Jiabao was the Chinese premier, and he was a serious guy. He was presented by the Chinese as almost a co-equal leader with Hu Jintao, and he was a decision maker on serious issues. I don't think we can say the same of the current Chinese leadership. The Politburo Standing Committee is not as consensus-based as it used to be. And so if ASEAN wants the real Chinese leadership to be present at the East Asia Summit, at the ASEAN Plus One Summits, it would be in ASEAN's interest to make a request of China to step up its engagement with ASEAN to get Xi Jinping into the picture so I think that would be an entirely reasonable thing for ASEAN to demand of China. But there are historical reasons why it developed the way that it did and why it's not treated the same way by ASEAN when Xi Jinping doesn't come to the East Asia Summit. I mean, I agree. I think that ASEAN should begin making that request. But I can foresee the Chinese response that, well, we engage with all of you bilaterally really intensely anyway, which 
is a good and a bad thing because it's a reflection of how China deals with, for example, the South China Sea dispute, right? And so, I mean, I, I really like that suggestion, Aaron. I think it's it's also, you know, it's the way that the Trump administration defends its engagement with Southeast Asia is to say that, no, we didn't go to the summits and we didn't spend very much time on ASEAN, but we engaged bilaterally, quite aggressively with Thailand, the Philippines, maybe not very successfully in some cases, but quite assiduously. So there's a kind of mirror imaging going on uh, between China and the United States on this question. And it's in ASEAN's interest to try to get the leaders to the summit and to get them to engage with ASEAN as an institution, as opposed to just ASEAN member states. And I don't see the the next chair, Laos, being in a position to do that. But perhaps in 2025, Malaysia, which has historically also been very seized with these issues, it's as referred to as the permanent shepherd within ASEAN on the, the post-2025 vision about where ASEAN is going next. Perhaps Malaysia will focus on this in 2025. I, I should flag the White House's answer to this, I think, was to invite President Jokowi to the Oval Office after APEC. And based on President Biden's statement, the White House joint statement, or White House fact sheet after the stop in Hanoi, the White House is signaling pretty clearly that Jokowi has accepted that he will come to Washington after APEC for what would be the third Oval Office visit after Prime Minister Lee and President Marcos. I don't know if that is enough to help assuage any of this, take the sting off for the Indonesians. But in any case, that's that's been kind of clearly the face-saving measure that they they came up with. I'm a Southeast Asia watcher. I had to read all the same books you guys did and was inducted into the Church of Asian Centrality too. But I also now am, am I think, painfully aware that no U.S. president is ever going to make it to every East Asia summit of their presidency. And we just have to accept that. And if that's the case, is it more damaging to signal leader-level attendance and then disappoint or just baseline that the VP is going to be the representative, except for special commemorative summits like the one last year in Washington. My sense is that if we just do the same thing China does and signal that we are going to send the number two, at least, and if the president shows up, that's a nice bonus, it'll ultimately reflect better on the U.S. than setting expectations unreasonably high and then disappointing. I'm not ready to give up the ghost on this. I think that it's still very important for the U.S. president to attend the East Asia Summit to meet with ASEAN in ASEAN member states once a year because it signals that the United States is interested in hearing them out, listening to their concerns, that the United States is comfortable in a, in a setting in which it doesn't set the agenda and it lets others set the agenda. That is you know, entirely consistent with U.S. post-World War II diplomacy and liberal internationalism. And so if the United States is to remain a liberal internationalist power, it's in its interest to do these things. We as Southeast Asia specialists who work on these issues, I think, uh, should continue to communicate to the administration that it would be in their interest to do these things, whether the administration responds positively or, or not, or chooses to set a different baseline, I think is a different question. And being at the double IWS, I can't make sort of direct recommendations to the U.S. administration. It's not what we do, but it's something that's important to communicate to them. But I think it was particularly puzzling that Biden was already going to be in the region anyway, and he just chose not to attend. And so that's why I think there was a, a distinct sting this year. Yeah, the, the contrast between going to Vietnam to upgrade a partnership. And again, I think it sends this signal that the U.S. is interested in working with Southeast Asian countries that are on board with this China policy. But if you're not on board, then you don't get a visit from the president and you don't get as much attention Maybe that is an effective strategy in trying to get ASEAN countries more on board with the administration's China strategy. Maybe that's what the White House thinks it is doing. 
But I think it's actually likely to have the opposite effect, as we see in the case of Indonesia. And if we could just talk about Indonesia-U.S. relations for a little bit, because Indonesia is so important in the Southeast Asian context and in the ASEAN context. You know, I think whether President Jokowi goes to Washington or not, we have seen repeated signals over the last several years, going back to the middle of the Trump administration, that President Jokowi doesn't really regard relations between the Indonesian and U.S. governments as that important. He sent a number of ambassadors to Washington who are focused on economic issues, business figures. Mahendra Siragar is more of an economic diplomat, very good one, serious people, but people who are focused on business. And I'm told that when President Jokowi met with Rosan Ruslani before he was sent to become the ambassador to Washington two years ago, that he told Rosan that um, he should focus on being an ambassador to American business. He was as much the ambassador to Tesla and Elon Musk as he was to President Biden and the White House. And that is a real signal of disengagement from the most important partner that the United States could have in Southeast Asia. And it's one that should concern U.S. policymakers. And of course, the U.S. is not, we have also, um, the United States has also not been sending ambassadors regularly to Jakarta. And our current ambassador has two jobs. He's also the special envoy for North Korea. So there are signals on both sides of a kind of slow disengagement And so we're a very long ways away from the comprehensive partnership that was negotiated by President SBY and President Obama. And that relationship really does need some work. And I don't think it's getting the kind of work that it needs from either side, from President Jokowi's side or President Biden's. We need to talk about Vietnam. And so unless there's any objections, I mean, like real key takeaways, I'm going to glance over the G20 because plenty of other folks in Washington will talk about the G20 in India. I don't have any problem with the president prioritizing the bilat in Vietnam if the decision presented to the White House was the president can't be out in Asia for a full week or a week and a half. You've got to pick two out of three. I'm not saying that I like that decision, but if that was the math presented to the Asia team at the NSC, I think that what they came out of Vietnam with is more than they would have walked out of the ASEAN summit with. A comprehensive strategic partnership, while in one sense just symbolism, it's pretty important symbolism from the Vietnamese. How do you read that? I think it does seem to be a very important signal. It's interesting when you speak to American analysts and they, they talk about the image of President Biden standing next to President Chong as they upgraded the partnership in front of the presidential palace. I think, you know, Americans were very pleased to see that image because it was a signal to party cotters in Vietnam that it's okay to work with the United States more closely, that all these projects that maybe you weren't sure about executing because you didn't have a comprehensive strategic partnership, the party has now blessed those projects. And despite what happened earlier this year with the purge of President Fook and two deputy prime ministers who were seen as closer to Washington, at least by us, that it's okay to work with the United States. When I speak to Vietnamese analysts, including our friend Bic, who's worked with both you at CSIS and, and me at IISS, they saw that image as a signal that the United States had accepted the VCP's one-party control and accepted Vietnam's political system. So it seems like it was a very valuable signal on both sides, but for different reasons that are maybe not entirely reconciled, because I don't think the United States is going to stop advocating for religious freedom in Vietnam or advocating for the release of environmental campaigners. There may continue to be issues down the road, but it does seem like a pretty important signal that might open up further avenues of cooperation. I wonder if that dissonance was thought through and and deliberate or... Did it just happen by coincidence that you have you know very different perceptions on both sides? Because that's really interesting. 
going up into the political season in Washington. I wonder what that will signal to the domestic constituency in the U.S. Just to give some credence to that point, which is very insightful, Aaron, it, when you read the joint statement, it is clear that both of those messages were carefully negotiated and baked in. The language of the joint statement, and especially if you look at the joint press conference and Chom's remarks, which were presumably previewed to both sides, make clear that the U.S. accepts the domestic political system of Vietnam, has no interest in you know peaceful evolution, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also have the commitment to deepen the dialogue on human rights issues. And you had the Vietnamese, as they often do when a U.S. leader comes, make some tactical release of uh, dissidents ahead of the visit. So I don't know that this tension is entirely bridged or bridgeable, but it is clear that both sides went to great lengths to try to give the other cover where needed. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think this speaks more broadly to something that Maybe the Biden administration doesn't get enough credit from Asian countries that are concerned about it being too ideological for shelving some of these concerns in a country like Vietnam. And I would add also shelving them in India, where President Biden had just been for the G20. And most importantly, I think shelving them in Thailand, where there was a real opportunity for a democratic breakthrough earlier this year. And contrary to U.S. actions when Pue Thai was under pressure in years past, the U.S. attitude on move forward's ability to form a government and the Senate's role in selecting a prime minister in Thailand over the summer was very, very quiet. And so the Biden administration came to power, came to office, talking a lot about strengthening democracy around the world, pledging to host a summit of democracies. There was a lot of discomfort in this region with that rhetoric, but actually we don't see any of that in Asia. You may see it in Europe. You may see it in the way that the president initially handled Saudi Arabia, But you don't see that in Asia. And the irony for me is the administration doesn't really seem to be getting any credit for that from the likes of, say, Singapore, Malaysia, where there might have been a little bit more kind of discomfort with that rhetoric. It's still seen as very ideological is the word that we hear all the time, despite not actually evidencing uh, much ideological motivation Uh in Asia. There's a lot more that could be said on Vietnam and will be said. But before we wrap, I want to circle back to one last issue on the ASEAN summit. Uh, which is the treatment of Myanmar. Before the summit, you had the special joint statement issued by the other nine on Myanmar, which included some pretty tough language about the military junta's attacks on civilians, which provoked a protest from Napidol. You also had the decision to strip Myanmar of its 2026 ASEAN chair and give that to the Philippines, reportedly at the request of Myanmar. What do you make of the way Myanmar was dealt with leading up to and during the summit? I think this is a real achievement of Indonesia as chair, that they were able to deliver these agreements amongst the ASEAN 9. And it's also a sign that ASEAN's not actually that divided over the Myanmar question anymore, especially with the change of government in Thailand last week. I talked to a few delegations about the review and decision document, as it was called, on on Myanmar, which was a leaders-level consensus document And it was reached without very difficult negotiations. Over the two and a half years since the coup, there have been a number of really difficult negotiations within ASEAN. It has been able to reach consensus every time, which I think is the real measure of a multilateral organization, whether those negotiations are difficult or not. This time, they weren't difficult. There is real frustration with the SAC junta's refusal to negotiate and refusal to reduce violence. And so we saw that in this document where the 
Other nine ASEAN member states are specifically calling out the junta for attacks on civilians and on places of worship, which we hadn't seen before. And that was a consensus statement. So I think it's it's significant. We'll have to wait and see what happens with this new, they're calling it an informal mechanism. Really, it's a troika, but we're not supposed to call it a troika. We'll have to wait and see what happens with this new informal mechanism between Indonesia, Laos, and Malaysia next year. I think it reinforces the, the resources that are available to ASEAN to carry on diplomacy, to try and bring about an end to this crisis, whether that is through elevating the NUG in certain ways, for instance, by allowing it to establish an office in Jakarta, which is one option that would be available to ASEAN if it chooses to try and put more pressure on the SAC or to try and engineer more back-channel diplomacy. And then finally, one really important thing that it does is it, it continues Indonesia's efforts to bring about conversations between different ethnic armed groups in Myanmar, which weren't talking to each other before Indonesia's chairmanship. Indonesia's hosted a number of conversations amongst them in Bali. And, uh, you know, as one Myanmar colleague of ours uh, put it when we hosted him in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, Indonesia is the first Asian country to put ethnic justice at the heart of its Myanmar policy. And I think that's a really important shift and one that has some prospect of being sustained given this new informal mechanism. But I think this informal arrangement, aka the Troika, is also to allay some concern both within and outside the region that there's not going to be continuity of Indonesia's efforts, right, at um, trying to find some sort of solution to the crisis in Myanmar. So kudos to Indonesia. And just finally, one last thing on the chairmanship. I mean, Myanmar says that it gave up its chairmanship, but the document is very clear that it was the decision of the other nine leaders that Myanmar would skip a turn at its chairmanship unless things changed. And that's quite different from 20 years ago when Myanmar last gave up its chairmanship, when it was allowed to very slowly over a number of months give up its chairmanship and save face in that way, even though it was clear other ASEAN members didn't want Myanmar to chair. And so I think that's a, a sign of the of displeasure. And then finally, I'd add, you know, the Myanmar MFA came out with a statement right after words that said that they rejected this document, that they're input wasn't taken into account, that they offered input and wasn't taken into account. So that means that now it's possible for ASEAN to reach a leader's level consensus without taking into account Myanmar's input. And I just think back to the op-ed that Alina wrote in Foreign Policy back in 2021, advocating for Myanmar to be suspended from ASEAN. And I think what we have now is a de facto suspension of ASEAN. If they cannot stop a leaders level consensus document from being issued that includes this language, then Myanmar is de facto not really a member of ASEAN, at least at the leaders level, at the foreign minister's level, at defense minister's level. And that's pretty significant. And it's happened slowly over time. So ASEAN doesn't really get very much credit for it. But it is a very significant sanction, not an economic sanction, but a diplomatic sanction from ASEAN of the SAC junta. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it there for this week. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for uh, joining me here in Manila. Thanks, Greg. Nice to see you, Alina, even if uh, virtually. Likewise. Thank you all for listening. Alina and I will be back in two weeks for the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at sdaradio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer your questions. Do us a favor and subscribe. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. 
My name is Jaffet Kitsan. And I'm Rachel Lambert. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 